Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books and Medicine podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jeremy Kaur, and today I have with me Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. She is here today to talk about her book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So first off, what inspired you to write The Butchering Art? Oh, well, um, you know, it's it's funny because when I was thinking about writing this book, I actually thought I was going to write it about a man named Robert Liston. He's a surgeon in the 19th century. He's sort of a bigger than life character. He's 6'2". He's incredibly tall for his era. And he was really a colorful uh, person. And so, for instance, he would walk into the operating theater and he would say, time me, gentlemen. And you could almost hear the ripple of pocket watches as they, they came out to time the great Robert Liston. And he could remove your leg in under 30 seconds. He was known as the fastest knife in the West End. And one of my favorite stories about Liston was that he had this patient who was on the operating table who was going to have a bladder stone removed, which was, as we can imagine, incredibly painful in a pre-anesthetic era. And the patient decided after looking at this giant surgeon that he wasn't going to go through with it. So he jumps off the table, he runs across the room, he locks himself in a closet, and Liston, all six, two of him, chases after this poor guy, rips the door off the closet and drags him back to the table and removes his bladder stone. And so I thought this was this was the guy I wanted to write about. But the problem was that Robert Liston doesn't push a transformative moment. Um, he does perform the first ever operation under ether in Britain, but he doesn't discover ether. And, um, and so I really wanted to find that person who um, helped the paradigm shift and help get us to where we are today, which was ultimately Joseph Lister. So you touched on it a little bit, um, but what was pre-anesthesia, pre-antiseptic surgery like in, in Victorian medicine? <laughs> it was pretty awful. Um, I can't even have my teeth cleaned without any kind of anesthetic, so I can't imagine what these patients went through. Um, of course, they were fully awake. Sometimes they were sat in chairs rather than on a table. Um, and these chairs were very high so that their feet dangled so they couldn't brace against the knife. And of course, they would have been restrained. Um, the surgeon had to be very fast because of blood loss and shock. And the operating theaters themselves were filled to the rafters, sometimes with ticketed spectators. People actually bought tickets to go see the operation commence. And these places were very unhygienic. Um, They brought the grime and dirt of everyday life into the theater with them. And the operating floor itself would have people gathered around it. These these weren't necessarily doctors or anybody who had anything to do with the operation. So it was absolutely fascinating um, to think about. It was only about 150 years ago that this was happening. And um, patients, you know, they, they, as I said, they died of shock and blood loss often. Unfortunately, as a historian dealing with 19th century records, I don't often get uh, patient voices. I get a lot of voices from the doctors themselves and from the medical community, but not necessarily the patients. But occasionally we get a story, a voice from a patient. So for instance, there was a woman named Lucy Thurston, and she had a mastectomy without any anesthetic in the 1840s. Now at this time, um, 
the wealthy or middle class had operations in their own home. And so the surgeon actually went to her house. And when he entered her bedroom, he opened his hand and showed her the knife he was going to use. And he told her to prepare her soul for death, which isn't confidence, confidence inspiring to say the least. And um, she did prepare for death, but I don't think she could, pre could prepare for the pain. And when she pulled through that operation, she wrote to her daughter this um, fantastic letter, which is featured in the butchering art. And she talks about um, how she was under the surgeon's hand for an hour and a half while he cut through uh, her breast tissue. And so I always remind my audiences that we are very, very lucky to live in the 21st century. Yeah. When I was reading your book, I, I thought about that quite a bit. So Yeah. Yeah. I know. No, no romanticizing the past here. You know, if you think it would have been nice to live in the 19th century, then I haven't done my job with the butchering art. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. We always talk about how, how broken healthcare is, but I'd, I'd be, I'd be happy to take what we have now over that any day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, speaking of that, you know, hospitals were very much places for the poor, as I said, um, and you needed a ticket to get into these hospitals. And in order to get that ticket, you needed to petition a hospital governor or someone on the hospital board. These people had no medical training, and it could take weeks, sometimes longer, before you actually got into the hospital. And although they were for the poor, you still needed to bring some level of income in order to cover your room and board. For instance, some hospitals charged you if they deemed you to be particularly foul. Um, I don't know how they determined that. Everybody seemed to be particularly foul in the 19th century. Um, other hospitals charged you for your inevitable burial because it was so expected you were going to die in these places. So your book actually opens with uh, the story of one of the surgeries of Robert Liston. What happened on December 21st, 1846 at the operating theater at London University College Hospital and what made it uh, historically significant? Yeah. So, you know, I said that Liston doesn't do, doesn't push a transformative moment. However, he does perform the first operation with ether in 1846 in Britain. He doesn't discover it. It's brought from America. And he doesn't even think that it's going to work. He calls it the Yankee Dodge. And when he walks into the operating theater, he says again, time me, gentlemen. And it's a miracle. It works. The patient is insensible. The age of agony is over. We have discovered anesthesia. And the reason I wanted to open the butchering art there is because I think that if people have ever thought about the history of medicine, which is, you know, you may never have thought about it until you stumbled upon this podcast, but if you have thought about it, it's, um, it's, pro it's possible that you think of that moment because it's such a huge moment in the history of medicine, the dawn of anesthesia. But actually, surgery becomes much more dangerous immediately following this because the surgeon still doesn't understand that germs exist, but he is more willing to pick up the knife. He is more willing to go deeper in the body. And as a result, post-operative infection rises, and these operations become nothing more than slow-moving executions. And I always joke that if I was writing the movie script, um, I couldn't have written it better because I'm on that day in 1846 in December, when the great Robert Liston performed the first ever operation under ether in Britain, there was a 17-year-old Joseph Lister in the audience. And Lister is really the person, I think, who ushers us into the modern era. Can you talk a little bit about Joseph Lister's early life and his relationship with his father? Yes. I mean, for, for those people listening, um, if you're not 
quite familiar with Joseph Lister and you're wondering why his name sounds so familiar, it's probably because of the product Listerine, um, which he didn't even invent. Uh, it was named for him, but not by him. And I like to tell everybody that it wasn't even used as a mouthwash in the 19th century. It was used more commonly to treat gonorrhea, um, a fact that I'm pretty sure the Listerine company is going to come after me at some point and tell me to stop, <laughs> stop telling people to just throw Listerine on it. I do not endorse that. Um, but, but Joseph Lister today amongst historians is known as the father of antiseptic surgery. So he applies Louis Pasteur's germ theory to medical practice and he develops antisepsis. And um, in that sense, I like to say that the butchering art is a love story between science and medicine because it's the first time that a scientific principle is applied to medical practice. And Lister was very much uh, the right person at the right time. There's a great line in that movie, Lincoln, which is a fictional conversation between Lincoln and um, a young man. And Lincoln says to this young man, do you think that we're suited for the times or do you think we're fitted for the times? And he says, I don't know, but I think you are. And that's how I very much feel about Joseph Lister. And the reason I feel that way is because Lister, when he was a young boy, was a Quaker, and he was growing up in this Quaker community that didn't allow people to dance or play music or anything, that, that kind of entertainment. But they did allow uh, science as a form of entertainment. And his father was an expert with the microscope. And so Lister grew up around the microscope, and he actually takes the microscope with him when he goes to medical school. And it's very unusual at this time that medical students dabble with microscopes. And so he's really perfectly placed to understand Louis Pasteur's germ theory when he reads about it. Um, and he has this incredible relationship with his father, as you mentioned. And there's many, many letters that feature in the butchering art, and there were many more that I didn't even include. But Joseph Lister has a mental breakdown, for instance. Um, when he was a medical student, he contracts smallpox, and he has a mental breakdown, and he leaves medical school. And it's really his father who convinces him to go back into it. And so it's a very loving relationship that um, constantly is pushing Lister back sort of towards his fate. In your book, you talk about how when Lister went off to UCL London or uh, UCL, London was drowning in its own filth. Can you talk a bit about this? So London was absolutely filthy at this time. And actually, an image that I like to throw out there for people is Gangs of New York. The 1840s um, was a time when uh, people were wearing sort of really colorful plaids and stripes and all kinds of crazy colors. We tend to think of the Victorians as wearing all black, um, but the 1840s when Lister enters medical school is is before Victoria plunges the nation into the morning. And so it looks very colorful and dingy and dirty. And London was absolutely filthy. It was in a, it was transforming. Um, there were posters all over the walls. Um, and you can picture all the garbage heaped up and just lots and lots of um, crazy color and chaos and filth and dirt and grime. And Lister walks into this world. And as a Quaker, he would have been wearing black and white. And I kind of like to think visually of as this story progresses, the world sort of catches up with Lister, gets a bit cleaner, um, a bit sharper, a bit crisper. Um, but yes, when, when Lister arrives in London to go to medical school, it was a very different world to the world he lived in, because at the time he was living in the British countryside. So we, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but when, when Lister brought his microscope with him to college, how was that viewed by his peers, professors, and, and even kind of throughout the rest of his career? 
the microscope was really seen as sort of a, a toy at best um, in medicine, because even though you can see magnificent things under the microscope, the view amongst the medical profession was what could it do to help us with the therapeutics? Could it change the way we treat a patient? And the answer generally was no. Um, so they didn't really see it as, as anything useful. Um, so at best, it was a toy. And Lister was just a, a very strange bird, so to speak, when he went into medical school, because again, he brings his microscope and he is infinitely curious about the world, infinitely curious about the world of the infinitely small. And when patients start dying um, in high numbers, he begins to wonder what's killing these patients. And he starts looking at tissue under the microscope and he starts putting you know, these things together. But, but the general medical community, of course, didn't use the microscope. So when Lister comes up with germ theory, when he starts to advocate Louis Pasteur's germ theory and advocate antisepsis, the medical community pushes back because from their viewpoint, um, here's this young man coming around and telling them that there are these invisible little creatures and they're killing their patients. And it was just a big leap of faith for them. And I think the other part of that was that Lister was essentially telling them that they had been inadvertently killing their patients the whole time. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between science and medicine at the time? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I always say that this is the birth of scientific medicine. So before then, you don't really have the merging of science and medicine at all. Um, and actually what you see through Lister's casebooks and through how he solves one of the greatest medical mysteries of all time is the scientific method in action. So for instance, in his casebooks, he is willing to talk about his failures as much as he is to talk about his successes. That is very unusual for doctors at this time. He changes his methods as he goes. So originally, he comes up with this thing that they, he calls the donkey engine, which is this giant bellows that would spray carbolic acid, his antiseptic, all over the room. He believed that the air contained all kinds of germs and that the air itself needed to be sterilized as well as the patient, as well as the instruments. But later he abandons this because he realizes that he, he doesn't have to sterilize the air. Um, and he actually says that he regretted creating this, this uh, donkey machine, which had become so famous and uh, really came to symbolize Lister and his techniques. And because he kept changing and modifying and making adjustments to his um, his techniques, he got criticized by the medical community because they said, there, you were wrong. You're admitting that you were wrong. But actually what we're seeing is the scientific method in action. Um, but it was just very unusual for someone to be doing that at that time. Let's kind of talk a bit more about what what life was like and what experiences were like for Lister uh, in his time at college. Uh, can you please talk about dissection rooms? What are they? And, and as gross as it is, what were some of the pranks that took place in them? <laughs> oh, yeah. So when I give my book talks, I do a, a section on the dead house. And that's featured in the book as well. The dead house is what they would call the cadaver room or the dissection room. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now who have a medical background, medical training. They've been in the cadaver room and they know what that looks like. Um, and I want people to really hold that image in their head when they're reading about Joseph Lister's first experiences in the dead house in the 1840s, because of course, this, this were, these were bodies that were not preserved. They were in sometimes semi-advanced states of decomposition. 
And it was very dangerous going into the dead house because no protective gear was worn, no gloves were worn. This is a time before people understood germs. They, they didn't understand how disease was spread. And a lot of doctors die as a result of going into medicine. Um, you have hu- very high mortality rates in medical school because, again, there's no vaccinations, there's no antibiotics. So there's just a lot of dangers lurking, and especially in the dead house. And so you get a lot of stories about what they call pinprick uh, cuts. And it would just be a small cut in your hand maybe while you were dissecting and you would get a bacterial infection and you, and you could die from this. A great example is Charles Darwin's uncle by the same name was a medical student in Scotland and he cut his hand while dissecting a child at the age of 19 and he died within 48 hours. So it could be very, very dangerous. And of course, it was very different to the cadavers that we dissect today. Um, and the other thing, as you say, there sort of was this jet black humor that came to characterize medical students in this period. And again, to kind of invoke that gangs of New York uh, image, you know, these, these medical students wore gaudy clothes and these really high top hats that were fashionable at the period. And they used to walk around with cigars hanging from their mouths because this would, of course, mask the smell in the dissection room. And they would carry bits and pieces of these bodies with them afterwards because it would stick to their clothing. But the pranks in the in the dissection room, if you go out there onto the internet and you look up 19th century dissection photos, you'll see a bunch of examples of this because when photography came about, people were taking photos as well in the dissection room. A really good example is something called the student's dream. And there's a picture of a medical student on the dissection table and he is surrounded by the cadavers that he has dissected and they are dissecting him. And so there was all kinds of like funny little pranks and photos that they would set up. Um, they, they used to take the, you know, rotting body parts and have mock duels with them and all the kinds of things that of course you would be kicked out of medical school today. Um, and I think that what we're seeing there is just a way of dealing with the horrible reality before them. Um, these dissection rooms were absolutely horrible. Um, the smells and the sights of the bodies um, in slightly decomposed states would have been uh, traumatizing, to say the least. And it was sort of their way of dealing with that. Can you talk a bit about some of the surgical instruments of the day? The surgical instruments, it, interestingly, um, the instruments didn't really change that much from the earlier period. So there's not too much innovation sort of in the mid-19th century. Um, Robert Liston, to go back to one of my favorite characters of the period, um, he had uh, invented something which then became known as the Liston knife. And it had a very long, sharp blade, and it, was, it had a, a certain kind of balance and weight to the knife. That knife was then allegedly used by Jack the Ripper or later um, in the 19th century. And he would put notches on his knife um, every time he had a successful operation. So he was kind of a maniac in that way. But the instruments, they, they didn't really evolve when Lister came in um, to medical school in the 1840s, they hadn't much evolved from the earlier period. Um, but you do start to get pop-up uh, shops in London advertising painless knives, which I love. We sell painless knives and come in and buy our knives and your patients won't feel any pain, which, of course, we know couldn't have possibly been true. Um, but, uh, you know, the instruments and even today, actually, a lot of the instruments that were used in the 19th century probably look very similar to what we're still using today, except we use stainless steel um, so we can sterilize instruments. So these knives would have had potentially ivory 
handles. Um, they could have been potentially ornate in their handles, um, which of course now we know that a lot of germs could be, could harbor in those um, nooks and crannies. Um, but but barring that, they look kind of similar to the things that we would use today. Why were hospitals of the time known to the public as houses of death? There was this term that sort of popped up in the mid-19th century called hospitalism, and it refers to the idea that you were more likely to die as a result of entering the hospital. And there were four infections that surgeons particularly feared, which were septicemia, pyemia, erysipelas, and hospital gangrene. And I always like to pause and remind people that those, of course, are still things that we contract today, that patients die from today. But the difference is because we understand that germs exist, we are better able to proactively prevent it, and we are also better able to treat it when it, when it um, happens. But if you can imagine a time when people didn't understand this, um, it was very difficult. These kinds of infections spread like wildfire around the hospital wards. And these places became basically pest houses. And the situation was so bad that it was seriously suggested that the only way to control it was to burn the hospitals down from time to time and just start anew because people just didn't understand how to control the infection rates. And so they became very much houses of death. These were not places that you wanted to enter unless you were absolutely desperate. And that is exactly why why if you were middle class or if you were wealthy, you, um, you were treated at home because you were less likely to get an infection as a result because you weren't around all these sick patients. That was one of the, the most interesting things from your book was that people would, would want surgeries to happen at their own home. That's such a weird concept today. It's such a weird concept. Actually, you know, um, when Lister comes to Philadelphia, he comes to Philadelphia in 1876 to convince the Americans that germs exist. And it was a big push at this time because the Americans were very resistant to this idea. Um, but there were uh, there was one man in the audience who invented Listerine. He was he was inspired by Listerine. There was another man named Robert Wood Johnson, and he too was inspired. And he got together with his brothers to create a company in America that produced surgical antiseptic dressings. And that company today is known as Johnson & Johnson. And um, they they um, produced these pamphlets, and for lack of a better way of describing it, they were sort of like idiots' guides on how to operate on your own kitchen table, and it's all perfectly safe as long you as long as you use Johnson and Johnson surgical antiseptic dressings. Um, and so people, yeah, they were they had their operations at home, and in fact, Lister performs a mastectomy on his own sister on his dining room table after several surgeons refused to do this. And this was at the very beginning of him developing his antiseptic methods. And um, a, a lot of surgeons refused to do it because, of course, you would have a gaping wound on the chest that was likely to get infected. And so a lot of women were told it wasn't worth the risk, that they were going to have to accept their inevitable death, but that they shouldn't speed that up by basically cutting into their chest cavity and leaving it open and ripe for infection. But Lister decides to do this operation himself in his house on the dining room table. And it took a lot out of him emotionally um, to have to do that. But his sister survives. And um, it's it's a wonderful moment in the butchering art. But it was very, very common for people to have operations in their own home. So no, at these, at these hospitals, no one really understood the infections, what caused them and, and what caused them to spread. What were, what were some of the theories? What, what did people think? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it, I go into this in detail um, in the book, and it's a little confusing because some of what they thought makes a little sense to us. So for instance, the dominant theory was miasma theory. And that's the idea that bad smells were causing death, that there were these little particles, so to speak, 
um, around areas that smell bad. And if you breathe that in, you could get sick. And this sounds a little bit like germ theory, but it's not quite the same thing. And miasma theory was really the dominant theory when the bubonic plague was raging in Europe. And some of people out there might be familiar with the plague mask, that long beak-like mask that people wear at Halloween. And um, that actually comes from the 18th century, sorry, the 17th century, um, it was invented in order to protect doctors from the plague. And what they would do is they would stuff sweet smelling herbs at the bottom of the beak, and this would protect them from the bad smells of the plague. So there was kind of a logic to, to this because, of course, in areas that smell very bad, you do tend to have higher disease, but it doesn't explain everything. So for instance, cholera. How is cholera spread? That's, that doesn't seem to be related to smells. And there was a man named John Snow in the 19th century who was able to map the cholera epidemic to a single water pump in London, which was a huge step forward in basically um, challenging the idea of miasma. So all of this is happening in Lister's time. People don't understand how diseases spread. They think it might have something to do with bad smells. Um, and Lister himself was a proponent of miasma theory until ultimately he realizes that germ theory is the explanation. Will you please talk a bit about the story of Julius Sullivan and Lister's first surgery on his own? Oh, Julius Sullivan. You know, it's funny. I wrote this book so long ago, so you're really <laughs> pushing into my memory banks here, too. I've been going on this worldwide tour for the last year, but there's there's only certain things that people ask about. And actually, Julius Sullivan hasn't come up that much, um, but it is an incredible story and moment. So Julius Sullivan is, is a young, is sort of middle-aged woman in um, the 19th century, and she's in an abusive relationship. And she moves out um, and moves in with another woman into a different part of London. And her husband ends up stalking her and eventually stabbing her. And when he stabs her on the street, her guts sort of start pouring out of this wound. And it's really awful. So she's rushed to the hospital. Now, Lister is brand new, like a brand new minted surgeon. And he happens to be on duty that night with no other surgeon attending. And Julia Sullivan is brought into the hospital. Now, it's her good luck that she is brought into Lister's care because he ends up doing something that um, is very experimental. He sutures the gut, which was, of course, very dangerous because, again, it, was, it, it could become infected. Um, and instead of leaving the wound open, he sutures this, this whole thing together. He ends up saving her life. And I say that actually he saves two lives because if she had died, her husband would have been hanged. Um, and executed for the murder. But as it stands, he was put on trial and Lister actually had to testify because surgeons at this time were expert witnesses. And he is um, deported to the, to the penal colonies in Australia. Can you talk about the revelation Lister had during the gangrene outbreak at his hospital in 1852? Yes. Okay. So yeah, Lister, when he reads Louis Pasteur's germ theory, um, Louis Pasteur is working on this problem about why vine, wine spoils, um, which is very important. We don't want our wine to spoil. And he's noticing that when wine spoils, it has a certain kind of smell. And when Lister reads Louis Pasteur's work, he also notices that there's a, a particular kind of smell in festering wounds that become gangrenous um, or septicemia. And actually, surgeons would refer to wounds either healing sweetly or heal, healing sourly. 
which refers again to that smell that a wound takes on when it's infected. And he begins to wonder if the thing that is making the wine spoil might be the same thing making the wound spoil. And he wonders if he could kill that thing inside the wound, that it's coming from outside the wound and if he could kill it. So he begins to experiment with carbolic acid, which is an antiseptic. And he knows he needs to wait for the perfect patient with a compound fracture, because again, if the leg or the limb breaks and the, and the skin isn't broken, it's unlikely to become infected. And that comes to him in the form of an 11-year-old boy. And his uh, leg is crushed, and it takes several hours to get him to Lister's hospital. And he finally does arrive at the hospital and Lister cleans out this wound with the carbolic acid. And over several months, he is able to save this boy's leg and the, and the boy walks out of the hospital several months later. And this is really important because again, remember these hospitals are very much places for the poor and they rely on their mobility for their livelihood. So if you can save limbs, it's, it's good for so many reasons. Um, and so over the course of um, a year, he begins to experiment with several patients with carbolic acid, and he gets great results, and he eventually publishes his, his results. Can you talk a bit about uh, Joseph Lister's relationship with uh, James Syme and his time studying under him in Scotland? Yeah, James Syme features greatly in the butchering art. Um, he is actually the cousin of Robert Liston, but he is built very differently. He's very short. And as a result, he's known as the Napoleon of surgery. And he also is trained at a time when uh, brute strength and speed are necessary in a pre-anesthetic era. And if anybody's listening out there and wonders why the name Syme might sound familiar, it's because there is still an operation that is performed today bearing his name. Syme came up with a technique to remove a diseased foot at the ankle joint. So before then, if you had a diseased foot, you would lose your leg below the knee. And again, to go back to that issue of why this is important, well, remember, if you lose your foot, you have a lot more mobility than if you lose half your legs. So this was an incredibly important advance he made. Syme was just as fearless as his cousin, Robert Liston. In 1828, a man named Robert Penman came to him. He had been uh, suffering from a facial tumor that was growing for the last eight years. And it was just enormous. If you Google Robert Penman, you, you can see a picture um, a painting of him, and then later a picture of him after he survives his operation. Syme agrees to do this harrowing operation, and he seats Penman in a chair, and there is no anesthesia because this is 1828, and he, over 24 minutes, proceeds to cut this tumor out of his face bit by bit, dropping it at the bucket at their feet. So he was an incredible surgeon. And um, Joseph Lister ends up traveling up to Scotland, which he intends to only stay for about a month to meet Syme. And he ends up falling in love with Syme's daughter. He ends up marrying his daughter. So Syme becomes his father-in-law and really invigorates in him a new passion for surgery after he has his mental breakdown. Syme really is sort of his uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, so to speak. Um, he really is his guide through this world and um, an incredible person um, and influence on Lister. Let's talk a bit about Lister's move to Glasgow. Um... One of the things that's a big focus today in healthcare is patient experience. I didn't realize this before I'd read the book, but this was another area that Lister was kind of a pioneer in, um, saying every patient, uh, even the most degraded, should be treated as though they were the Prince of Wales himself. Uh, will you talk about Lister's focus on the comfort of and compassion towards patients? 
Yeah, you know, um, and again, this, this is such a great question because a lot of people actually, they're so focused on, you know, the scrotal tumor and, and all of those bizarre stories, which we all love, let's face it. Um, but yeah, Lister was a very kind man and his Quaker faith uh, really guided his, his patient care. And actually, he had this quirky trait that the medical community really despised, which was that he didn't actually charge his patients. He allowed them to decide how much they could pay him. Um, and of course, this made the other doctors look very bad, and, and they didn't like this practice at all. But Lister very much um, believed that, as you say, each patient should be treated equally. And you get some really tender moments. One of my favorite moments is this little girl um, who he's treating. Her, she has a doll with her, and the doll's leg has fallen off, and she holds it up to Lister and asks him to sew it back on and he gingerly gingerly does this and it's just a very sweet moment and I think that you know when we look back to the 19th century it's so far removed from us that we can almost look at it as a caricature um, and we feel very emotionally distant from it but we have to remember that again it was very dangerous to go into medicine it took a lot out of these these surgeons even people like Robert Liston who is um, quite a character and you know, Lister, Liston, Syme, they were all performing surgery after surgery. They were seeing, seeing incredibly high mortality rates. And they must have been living and dying with their patients as well. It must have taken a lot out of them. And I think Lister especially cared deeply for the people who came into the hospital. And um, he becomes very much invested in, in patient care at the time. Can you talk a bit about what caused Lister to, uh, Lister to subscribe to what was called the cleanliness and cold water school of thought? This is an example of Lister trying multiple different things. And there are different theories at the time, for instance, whether a surgeon should use hot water, whether they should use cold water to clean out wounds. Um, and he very much experiments with multiple different things. He, he also experiments with different car, um, antiseptics as well. And even carbolic acid is so corrosive that he has to mix it with things like olive oil eventually, because even though an antiseptic can kill germs, if it, cre if it damages tissue, of course, that will um, that could be fatal for a patient as well. So there are multiple different steps that he goes through before he finally and ultimately um, advocates germ theory and, and antisepsis. And so you see a lot of that in the book. Can you talk a bit about this early phase of him looking into antisepsis and ultimately deciding on carbolic acid as the one he wanted to kind of pursue. Yeah, it was interesting. Again, it's kind of, you know, just when you look back in history and you think, what if that hadn't happened? And I think the, the moment for Lister was he read about um, this town called Carlisle and they had a huge sewage problem and they were using carbolic acid to kill that rotting smell of the sewage in the, in the village, in the town. And he wondered if what was if the carbolic acid was again killing the bad smells if that had something to do with what might be killing the bad smells in the wound and so he starts using carbolic acid but as i said carbolic acid of course is very corrosive and so at first um, you know, he had cases where it caused more damage than it helped. And so he had to keep adjusting his methods and learning what was ultimately going to work. Even though he started mixing carbolic acid with things like olive oil so that it wasn't as so corrosive, he, of course, was exposed to this day in and day out. And it ate away at his hands. And he had this habit later in life of holding his hands in his pocket to kind of hide the fact that his hands were so eaten away by this corrosive carbolic acid, because of course, gloves were only invented later in the 19th century. 
he he faced a lot of criticism for his work with antiseptics. Uh, what were some of these criticisms and how did he combat them? Yeah, and I always like to say that this really is the story of the history of science or the history of medicine, because we see this time and again. We see someone come in sort of from the outside and come up with an idea that really challenges the paradigm. And there is always going to be a lot of pushback. And so I always say that if there's a take home while reading the butchering art, it should be that what we know today isn't going to be what we know tomorrow. And we need to be open to these ideas and open to these change, changes and these solutions ultimately. Um, to some of the problems plaguing the profession. When Lister comes up with antisepsis and when he starts advocating germ theory, he does receive a lot of pushback. And again, like I said, you have to imagine there's this young guy telling these surgeons that there are these invisible little creatures, and it was a huge leap of faith. Um, and the other aspect of that was that he was telling them they had been inadvertently killing their patients. And that really was a hard pill for them to swallow. Um, but there were a lot of other criticisms. Some uh, surgeons said that carbolic acid had been around for a long time and that people knew of it. But again, while that was true, it hadn't been used in the way that it was currently being used by Lister. And that's really the important thing here. When I've been going around the world, a lot of people ask me about um, this uh, physician named Semmelweis. Um, and Semmelweis was practicing in Austria. And he was putting together this idea that if you wash your hands, mortality rates in the wards declined. And people asked me, well, wasn't he the first to do this? But he wasn't really, because until you understand germs, there's no way to convince anybody to systematically do anything, um, including washing your hands. And Semmelweis sort of dies. He's, he's um, criticized as a hand washer, and they put him in an insane asylum. So there's a very kind of romantic, weird story there that people are attracted to. And actually, Joseph Lister visits his hospital years after Semmelweis dies, and they ask him whether they had heard, well, whether he had heard of Semmelweis, and he said no. So again, unless the physician is making the impact that ultimately Lister did. Um, it's, it's hard to say that they achieved anything um, systematically. Lister ultimately convinces the medical community how to accept germs in antisepsis by going to the younger generation. He realizes he can't change the hearts and minds of the older guard. And he is an incredible teacher. And his students go out into the world and they become known as the Listerians and they spread the gospel of Lister. And that's ultimately how it happens. It happens over a slow time. It's, it takes 10 to 20 years before people finally start accepting this. But thank goodness they did, because I always say Lister saved more lives than any other person who's ever lived if you extrapolate, because we now operate knowing that germs exist. One of the things I found interesting was even after he performed uh, successful surgery on Queen Victoria... Um, he still faced major opposition in the United States and even London. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, and and I would love it. You know, it'd be great for a movie moment if that was it. You know, he goes to Queen Victoria, he cures her, and everybody is accepts him. Um, but again, it just takes a long time. And actually, America is a bit baffling because they're just coming off the Civil War at a time when, you know, a lot of soldiers were dying of, of um, infection. Um, they were packing wounds with mud during the Civil War. It was, it was a horrible, horrible time. But it's just very difficult for people to understand um, that germs exist. And even some surgeons will accept that germs exist, but they don't accept that they're dangerous as Lister is claiming they are. And I think, again, it's, it's the way that knowledge is spread. Um, of course, it was much slower 
um, to gain acceptance because he had to come over here and advocate um, for for germ theory. And um, it took it just took a long time before people were able to accept it. You know, I always say that I don't like to actually talk about Joseph Lister too much in interviews or in my book talks because I really want people to pick up the butchering art and go on that journey with him. Um, and they, I want the, my, my book is narrative nonfiction. I very much believe that history should be both entertaining and educational. And so the book is written like a novel, although it's hundred percent true. And there's these incredible people around him that we've talked about today, Robert Liston, James Syme, and, and they all have a huge influence on him. And I want people to go on that journey with him. How does he solve one of the greatest medical mysteries of all time? One story I can tell you, though, that I think really underlines how far we've come is um, is a story that I tried to tell in NPR, but they had the foresight to pre-record um, because they were afraid of what I might say on live radio. And I told the story and the producer at the end said, that's that's fascinating, but we cannot put that out on, to our NPR listeners. Um, but this is, a, you know, you know, medical audience listening. I think you guys can take it. And the story is that he had this instructor named John Eric Erickson. And he, Lister was attending one night at the hospital and this woman is brought in and she's asphyxiating on all this blood and pus that's gathered in her throat. And so Erickson cuts into her trachea and all this blood and pus begins spilling out in an inspired moment. He puts his mouth down on this wound and begins sucking all of this blood and pus out. And um, he does this three times and she survives. He survives. I mean, actually for the, the purpose of my book, it would have been better if they died to really illustrate how dangerous this was. Um, but it certainly shows how far we've come in such a short time. And I think if NPR had put that story out, I would have sold thousands of books off the back of it, but they were not, they were a little skeptical about how people would take that. But I always say, if you're going to pick up a book called The Butchering Art, you better get ready for it to get dirty and to get bloody. Will you talk about, you know, you talked about Johnson and Johnson earlier, but will you talk a little bit more about the legacy of Joseph Lister and his work? Yeah, um, when Lister finally triumphs, if we could say that, um, he he sort of lives into his own fame. And so there is things like, you know, Johnson and Johnson and Listerine, and there's this sort of carbolic acid mania. There's even a carbolic acid ragtime that comes up um, in this period, which you can find on YouTube, but the delights of modern technology, someone uh, brought it back up and played it on the piano. And it's this, this funny little ragtime, but he lives into his own fame, which he kind of hated. Um, he, he, he certainly wasn't looking for fame. Um, but he's also, what's fascinating to me is he's one of these people who burns bright in his own time, but then is largely forgotten shortly after. And when I was thinking about what book I wanted to write, I couldn't believe that nobody had told this story commercially. Um, because to me, it's such an obvious story. And I'm still, I'm still worried when I go and talk to audiences that someone's going to raise their hand and say, oh, by the way, did you know that this book was written 10 years ago by so-and-so? Um, but, but so far, I've been lucky. And nobody has told that story. And I've thought about it a lot. And I think it's because what Lister does is so monumental and it opens up so many other, it opens up a way for so many other advances to happen that his legacy largely gets buried. So if you think about it, now that we understand germs exist, we can do so much more. And so there's all these um, achievements and milestones that are hit in medicine shortly after Lister dies in the early 20th century. And it, he, his legacy just gets buried. And it's quite a shame because as I said, I think he solved one of the greatest medical mysteries of all time. 
And I think that was another thing I found fascinating about it. It was like I had heard of Lister before, but I didn't really know anything about him. I, I, I knew the story of Semmelweis and I know quite a, you know, Jonas Salk, for example, Edward Jenner, uh, people like that. But it's it's a shame that mm-hmm. more people don't know about Joseph Lister because he really did a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I I joke that, you know, when I started my book tour last year with the hardback, it was October 17th, I started in Philadelphia at the Mütter Museum. And it happened to be almost 135 years ago to the day that Lister had come to Philadelphia. He was invited by his critics to come and talk about germ theory. And the first day of the conference, they just... Uh, just uh, talk about how wrong he is and they attack him and he has to sit there. And then on the second day, he's able to speak and he speaks for many hours and he does convince some hearts and minds in that room. And I felt really happy to start in Philadelphia because he really was on a mission. And my mission, although like my mission is obviously to sell books, which is great. I'm a freelance writer, but my mission really is that the name Joseph Lister be just as familiar to people as the names Charles Darwin or Sir Isaac Newton, because I think he's that important. And if you really look at the state of hospitals before Lister walks on versus what happened as a result of him bringing antisepsis and then eventually asepsis um, to hospitals, it's extraordinary. Well, Lindsay, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, My final question for you is what are you working on now? Uh, what am I working on? My publisher wants to know, like, you know, they're, they're pushing me to keep moving forward. And I'm keep talking about this book. And actually, I'm, I'm trying to get the butchering art made into a movie. Um, You and I've talked privately about that. And I'm hoping I'll have some news on that soon, because I think that this would be a great cinematic story to tell um, on the big screen. But right now, what I'm officially working on is my second book, which is about the history of plastic surgery, told through the story of a man named Harold Gillies, who was rebuilding soldiers' faces during World War I. And it starts on the battlefields of World War I, and it ends in the 1940s when he starts doing the first gender reassignments. So it's a huge um, look at plastic surgery, identity, um, and how he puts all these things together and essentially starts a new branch of medicine. I'm really excited to share that story because it's a pretty epic tale. Well, thank you very much. I'd love to have you back on when you're finished with that. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I had so much fun talking about this. Take care. Bye.